Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. So we'll be starting in this text, kind of previewed it last week as we were kind of backtracking our way through uh, where we have been in Acts and to see where we are going. We ended with Paul traveling through the Galatian region. Apollos is traveling to Achaia, and he's, he's debating the Jews in the synagogues, and Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus. So we have kind of three stories that we were following there, and now we jump back into Paul as he's traveled through these regions, and now he makes his way back to Ephesus. And so he's coming back to Ephesus here. This is the word of the living God. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and, some, and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about twelve men. Let's pray. Dear gracious Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that we can come and freely gather as your people, that we can come and worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, as we worship the risen Christ, Lord, each, each Lord's Day being Resurrection Sunday, celebrating the resurrection of Christ and our victory over sin and death. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us now as we come to this text. We pray that you'd be in our hearts, and, and Lord, we'd have clear thought as we seek to understand your will, and we seek to please you in all respects. Lord, I do now just, I lift up and I I thank you, Lord, for, uh, Lord, your work in the life of Mike Grayheck that just comes to mind right now, Lord, just what a miraculous thing that you have done, Lord, and we know that you're a God who loves to heal, uh, and we are so grateful, Lord, that you have chosen to, to keep him with us, Lord, to continue in the work of the ministry, uh, Lord, just really, again, miraculous workings, working in ways that only you could, Lord, by supernatural means and in extreme extremely difficult circumstances, Lord, but just your grace throughout all of this, Lord, the evangelistic opportunity for him and his family, and, and the people that have been impacted by this, and Lord, just, a, just another way that the body of Christ can come together and bind together in love, Lord, that we would love one another, but we thank you for Mike, and we thank you that he is with us still, and we thank you that he's recovering well. We continue to pray for him and pray for his family, that this would continue to impact them and continue to really stress the, the finality of death, Lord, the, the frailty of human life, that we, we live for a fleeting moment, but eternity is, is forever. And Lord, we, we thank you for Mike. We thank you for your work in his life. Bless us, Lord, as we come to this passage. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, so last week, we jumped back into the book of Acts, and we caught Paul at the end of his second missionary journey. And again, I explained that uh, they're, they're, they're labeled his first, second, third, some even fourth 
missionary journeys, not because he was kicking his feet back in between uh, on the beach, taking vacations, because I have my pointer and now it's not here because I, I want to just do this, uh, but it's not very helpful with nothing on the screen. But they're called, they're, they're divided up because he's making successive trips around the Mediterranean, 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 somebody help me, Mediterranean, oh my goodness, thank you, ugh, this is going to be, hopefully this is not a sign of things to come. So we saw in this, the end of his second missionary journey, the beginning of his third missionary journey, and within that I, I labeled three commitments of Paul to ascension, essential Christian principles. And I'll walk through that real quick as we recap. But first we saw Paul's commitment to fellowship. Paul's commitment to fellowship. In verse 18 of chapter 18, it says, Paul, having remained days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Cyria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Centria, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. And so in this we see Paul was a great man, greatly used of the Lord, but he couldn't do it alone. And we learn from Paul, we see his example of a need for Christian companionship, a need for fellowship with other believers. Fellowship with other believers enables us to be, to be vulnerable. We need to, to be real about our struggle with sin. We need to encourage one another in our mutual faith. This is not, this is not a solo battle. This is, this is a, a war that we fight together. If you claim to love Jesus, the greatest thing you could hope for your friends who love Jesus or who don't love Jesus is that they would come to know him and delight in him. And that hopefully you would, you, you would hope that your friends would be wishing that for you too, that you would look more like Christ. We need to be actively working towards mature Christian fellowship. Secondly, we saw Paul's commitment to his word. Paul's commitment to his word. Starting back in verse 19, it says, They came to Ephesus... And he left them there, that is Priscilla and Aquila. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them, saying, I will return to you again if the Lord wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So we see Paul's commitment to his word. This is a man of great devotion to God. Paul takes a vow or an oath before the Lord. We know this from verse 18. And much like fasting, there are requirements and stipulations to this vow. Paul is obliged to cut his hair. And then as we know from, again, just Jewish law and Jewish tradition, it seems that he would have gone and gone back to Jerusalem to present his hair and to make offerings to the Lord. Again, we, we emphasize these are not salvific offerings. These are, these are not offerings that he's expecting atonement for. He believes more than anyone in the finished final atonement of Christ. But this is, this is an offering of, of, of gratitude toward the Lord. This is a Jewish man. Paul is a Jewish man living in a Jewish culture. The Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so it's not unusual that he would do this. We know from Scripture that taking a vow or an oath before the Lord is a serious thing. In Ecclesiastes 5.4, it says, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. And for us today, we can learn from Paul's example. If you're like me, you often come to God in prayer, asking for spiritual strength, asking that God would enable you to persist in spiritual disciplines, such as prayer and Bible reading. 
A good example of being true to your word like Paul would be to resolve with all your might to keep those resolutions. If you make a New Year's resolution to read your Bible every morning, read your Bible every morning. Don't just casually make commitments or vow to others or to the Lord and then flake. And then again, like could be a, t- a tendency of my, of my own heart to come in prayer asking for strength when I'm not putting any work in and I'm not seeking and persisting in spiritual disciplines. It will go well with you if you dig into your Bible every day. It will go well with you if you come to the Lord in vulnerable, relational prayer and fellowship every day. I don't know why I thought of this illustration, but not reading your Bible and not praying is like a gazelle in the Sahara Desert with four broken legs. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen those Nat Geo videos of the the lions in slow-mo chasing the gazelle. The only thing the gazelle has going for it is its speed and agility. So I think you get the picture. If you were trying to walk through, run through the Christian life, fleeing the devil, fleeing the temptations and the tugs of the flesh, and you're not reading your Bible, you're not pressing into Christian fellowship, and you're not praying, you're like a gazelle with four broken legs. You will be devoured. We must pay what we owe. We must persist in our spiritual disciplines. And thirdly, we saw Paul's, commi- Paul's commitment to the church. In his case, the church is, or the church global, but we saw Paul's commitment to the church. And I don't even have to quote a specific por- portion of this passage because it's, it's riddled throughout the whole book of Acts, but particularly this portion in chapter 18. Again, Paul is an apostle of the church, specifically called by Christ, seeing Christ in the flesh, called to do these things, given apostolic gifts for the building of the early church. This is a man who loved the church. Paul's heartbeat and passion is the church. He is really the OG church planter. Paul is going from town to town, being ridiculed, stoned, mocked, persecuted, establishing church after church, establishing ruling elders, checking on the spiritual health of these people, pressing into their lives, hoping and praying that they would look like Christ. And then when it seemed best, he would, he would go. Again, the, the, the ruling elders presiding as the authority and the spiritual shepherds of that church, and he would go to another village and he would plant more churches, spreading the gospel This was Paul's heartbeat. And then last week, and then lastly, we saw a transition from, yeah, we go from Paul, and then we, we, we kind of transition to Priscilla and Aquila, where Paul left them off in Ephesus. We kind of go back there. As Paul is journeying continually, he's going down to uh, Caesarea, Jerusalem, Antioch. We go back to Priscilla and Aquila, where Paul left them. We see Priscilla and Aquila's gracious correction, and Apollos. Apollos' humble response. I won't spend a lot of time here because we'll really be diving into this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of John today, but I did charge you last week to consider how you correct your friends, how you bring up correction, confrontation. How are you doing that? Is it in a self-righteous way? 
Are you trying to make a big scene out of it? When someone screws up, a friend or a sibling screws up, man, are you pointing fingers and you're trying to get your parents to see? You're trying to get your friends to see how, how, how pious you are or how sinful they are? Or are you seeking to do it graciously, in private, seeking only the good of that person? And then I also charge you to consider how you receive correction. If someone confronts you, even if they confront you in a way that's not gracious, which newsflash, guys, when someone confronts you, it's almost never going to be perfectly done. There might be sinful intent. There might be self-righteousness in that person's heart. Does it make what they say invalid? Most of the time, no. Most of the time, no. If they say something to you that's rude, you can't just dismiss how they came across. You can't just dismiss what they said because of how they came across. We need to understand how to properly and graciously work through correction and confrontation. We need to humble ourselves no matter how confronted, no matter how affronted we are, and examine if there is any fault or error on our behalf. Guys, Apollos loved Jesus. Apollos loved Jesus. He was mighty in the scriptures, it says. He loved the gospel. He clung, clinged, clung to the gospel for his life, his breath. And when Priscilla and Aquila come along, again, graciously, lovingly, in privacy, they come along and they say, hey, you're not really, you've got, you're, we love what you're doing, but the, your teaching on baptism isn't great. Apollos didn't get all big man, don't tell me what to do, I'm the eloquent speaker, I'm the famous preacher. Apollos is like the John MacArthur of his day. He is drawing in crowds. He's got quite a following. We talked about in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, when Chris was talking about uh, in the first chapter, you know, there were divisions in the church, and some of them are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter. Again, two men greatly used of God. And in that circle, the third person that people are saying that they follow after is Apollos, who's very influential. He's a very gifted speaker. But because of his love for Jesus, he eagerly received the correction from this, these humble, seemingly unimportant married couple. These aren't, these aren't big, big name, hotshot people. He wanted to look like Jesus. He wanted to speak correctly about the things of the Lord. And so he received that correction humbly. And might we have that same spirit too? All right, so we're all caught up. And now on to the fun part. We're going to be walking through these first seven verses. And I wanted to start by asking you a question. It's a theological question. And we haven't studied pneumatology yet, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. But I think you guys can handle it. Some of you, maybe, hopefully. So, what is the function of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer? There's not just one answer, by the way. So what does the Holy, Holy Spirit do in the life of a believer? Raise your hand. Shows them how to live, okay? Working with our conscience, yeah? Gives them the strength. Holy Spirit is often referred to as the comforter. This is the helper. Jesus many times calls the Holy Spirit the helper. It's a big word that we use that is attributed with the Holy Spirit. Sanctification. It's the problem. What is it? Conviction. Again, yeah, working with the Word of God and your conscience to bring about conviction to conform you to the image of Christ. What a great gift we have 
in the Holy Spirit. So yes, the Holy Spirit brings conviction, working with our conscience as we walk through the Christian life, prompting and pointing us to live according to God's word. I said multiple times in Scripture, Jesus himself refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper, as Becky Jo pointed out, indicating the Spirit enables us, us to love and good works. And we learn in Romans 8 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit even intercedes with our, through our prayers when we don't know what to pray or how to pray, the Spirit bears witness on our behalf to God, interceding. We see in the book of Matthew that to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin. And again, we would understand that, that true believers cannot do this because, again, true believers, if, they, if you're in Christ, you are, you are saved. You, 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 are, you are completely and totally saved that you will persevere to the end. And so... Believers, it seemingly cannot blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, but it is, a, it is a, a, such a grievous sin that it is noted as unforgivable. And of course, we know that the believer, again, could not commit that blasphemy. In Galatians 5, we see the fruit of the Spirit listed, the singular... Oh, man, that was weird. Uh, sorry, guys. Um, we see the, the fruit of the Spirit listed... And the fruit of the Spirit, again, is a seal and a confirmation that someone has the Spirit of God within them, that they are a believer, that they love Christ, that they are saved. Verse 22 of Galatians 5 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I had to work very hard not to sing my my children's uh, song there. Um, (laughs) Against such things there is no law. So you might be wondering, what's the point? the point. Well, my point is that the Holy Spirit is essential to Christian living, fully equal with the Father and the Son within the Trinity. Sometimes I think the Holy Spirit can often become neglected, or we can even have a knee-jerk reaction to maybe some bad theological teaching on the Holy Spirit, such as charismatic theology. And so we can maybe even, in our minds, minimize the work of the Spirit. Might we never do this? as if the Holy Spirit was inferior in some way to the Father or the Son. This passage leaves no question. It leaves no room for that. It leaves no question about the power and the necessity of the Spirit. So once again, so once again I, I charge you as, you, as we read through this, as we walk through this text, to consider your relationship with the Holy Spirit. How are, how are you doing? Are you responding to the Holy Spirit within you? Are you, are you tampering your conscience are you trying to silence your conscience when the Holy Spirit prompts you, convicts you? The work of sanctification is going in your life, but it's really, it's really uncomfortable, and I don't, I don't love it, so I'm just going to ignore it. You need to be so careful. So consider your relationship with the Holy Spirit. So in verse 1, we'll walk through Paul's evangelistic inquiry. Paul's evangelistic inquiry. And to check to make sure that inquiry is with an E in this context, not an I, so I can get the alliteration. So we enter onto the scene here in verse 1, and we see that Apollos has traveled up to Corinth. Verse 1, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Pause. So Apollos is preaching in the synagogues of the Jew. Now he has traveled, Apollos has traveled seemingly up north, I should have got my pointer back out. That would have been really helpful. Apollos has traveled back up north. Achaia is really just modern-day Greece. 
Corinth is at the top of Greece. Achaia is kind of in the lower regions. And so he has traveled around the region of Achaia, and he's in Corinth preaching. That's where we're at. Where we're at. Because remember, we left with Apollos, and now we're back to Paul. And Paul is in Ephesus. He's been here several times. We know from the book of Ephesus, book of Ephesians, excuse me, he has a deep love and affection for the church at Ephesus. And right off the bat, we see that Paul meets some disciples. So if you're like me, you see the word disciples, my assumption, or initially reading this text, is, oh, disciples of Jesus, right? Disciples of Christ. No, that's not actually correct. The word disciple here just means learner or follower. So these men are actually Jews, and as we'll see there, they're not acquainted with Christ. They don't know about the working of the Holy Spirit. These men are not believers. So let's not jump to conclusions yet, but it says he met, he found some disciples. Verse 2, he said to them right off the bat, first question, Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit. And again, we, we recognize just basic Christian doctrine. Well, I'll ask you the question, who can receive the Holy Spirit? Who? Believers. Yeah, that's it. Simple. Believers are indwelt with the Spirit of God. Is there ever a time in the life of a believer in which he doesn't have the Spirit of God? No. All right. Great. Covered that. That's great. Simple. So, if you're a believer, you're indwelt with the Spirit. If you're an unbeliever, you don't have the Spirit of God within you. And if you're a believer, you cannot lose the Spirit. So, we know that. Basic Christian doctrine. Only whom the Lord has purposed to save will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is never a time in the life of a believer, a true believer, when he or she is without the Holy Spirit. So we can understand this text clearly, even though there is some controversy on this text, we can understand this text clearly by having a basic understanding of Christian doctrine. That these men are Jewish unbelievers. They seem to be seeking for God, we see that later they'll be baptized. They've been baptized into John's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. So they were looking toward the Messiah. They were doing all the things, but yet not saved. And again, I might take some time to emphasize the work, the exclusive work of God in salvation. We do not save ourselves. We cannot work our way to Christ. We cannot be religious enough to earn salvation. God is the one who brings the growth. God is the one who brings salvation. Again, working with our obedience, working with our obedience to the word of God. One commentator I read says that Paul's question here seems to indicate that Paul assumed that they were believers when he said that, when you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's what one, com- I have two commentaries, all right? <laughs> That's what one of them said. The other commentary said the exact opposite. And it said, one commentary, uh, one of my commentators said that his question seemed to indicate that he doubted their spiritual status. And I'm inclined to believe the second commentator, not just because it's John MacArthur, but because, again, basic Christian doctrine. We can understand from the text that these men were not Believers, faith comes through belief in Christ and Him crucified. Though these men were clearly, again, looking towards the Messiah, they missed 
the key fact of John's baptism that was pointing to Christ. John himself proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, baptizing Jesus. They missed that key fact. So we're to best understand these men are not believers. Secondly, we'll see Paul's high view of baptism. Paul's high view of baptism, which is just a biblical view of baptism. Believer baptism is an external, ex, external symbol of an internal working of the Spirit of God. And in, in, uh, in and of itself, baptism has no salvific or meritorious virtue. That is, that is, baptism doesn't save you or contribute to your salvation. Sometimes in our culture, we can even miss the significance of baptism. It's just something we do as Christians. We don't There are no implications of it. But Paul's second question right after, did you receive the Holy Spirit, was into what were you baptized? Because baptism is a mark that you are a Christian, that you belong to Christ, that you have submitted your life. Essentially, that that is your bending the knee to Christ, being with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection, and raised with Him in newness, of life. And we'll see all throughout the book of Acts with the Ethiopian on the road. Man, he, the, the book of Isaiah is explained to him, and, and he understands that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He sees a puddle on the side of the road. He says, Let me take a swim. I need to be baptized. I need to be joined with Christ in baptism. And it's significant because. Like I said, we can take it for granted sometimes in our culture, but there are cultures, and if you are baptized, again, as a visible marker of being associated with Christ, with the church, you are shunned by your family, your inheritance is cut off, your, your life might be threatened for taking that mark of baptism because the world recognizes you can, you can talk the talk, but until, until you, you, have, you have actually been baptized, until you've, again, partaken in that sacrament, in that ordinance, you're holding back. And it was no different in the day of Paul, in the day of these Ephesian believers. In Ephesus, there was the, the temple of Artemides, which is a Greek uh, goddess of the age. The temple of Artemides was one of the seven, original seven wonders of the world. It was said to be four times the size of the Parthenon, four times of that in Athens. Massive temple, massive pagan worship. Artemides, obviously, PG, was, was really just the sexual god of pleasure of the Greeks. So you're talking about all just sorts of immorality and pagan idolatry in Ephesus. And if you stand up and you say, I am a believer, I am submitting to the authority of Christ in baptism, in obedience, That is a marker, and you are marked. You're a marked man or woman, so to speak. You are shunned. You are an outcast. So baptism is extremely significant, and we should not take it for granted. I went off on a I just read my notes without actually reading my notes, so I'm trying to find my way back into my notes. So bear with me. Again, baptism is a sacrament, and I'll say sacrament in some Sometimes that word gets misassociated and people cringe, but it's a good word. It's a word that's been misused, misrepresented. It's, it's a word that's been used throughout all of church history to, again, distinguish the two sacraments, the two ordinances that Christ has instituted for his church. 
Again, we have bad theology coming from uh, a Catholic perspective of sacraments, adding in 1,200 sacraments to the list, and that's not helpful. But it's not sacred in the act itself <clears throat> or what's going on. It's sacred in what it symbolizes. Baptism symbolizes new birth, new life in Christ. And that is a sacred thing, as does communion similarly symbolize the death of Christ, his body broken, his blood shed. It is sacred, guys. So we must hold baptism in high esteem like Paul does. So we'll keep going. He says, yeah, in verse 3, he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in him who is coming after, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so we see Paul's gracious correction now. So we've seen Paul graciously kind of working with these men, correcting them, but firmly correcting because of wrong teaching and recognizing these men do not know the Lord. They do not have the Spirit of God within them. Paul doesn't demand that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. Again, he is faithful to present the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ. I'm sure there's much more that is not mentioned in here, but I'm sure Paul gave a thorough gospel presentation to these men. Paul is faithful to make correction, to speak of Jesus as the Messiah, but he let these men come to their own conclusion. With the spirits working in the hearts of these men, they come to see that Jesus is the Christ. And thus they become Christians. And what do they want to do immediately? What do they want to do? I'll let you guys answer. They become Christians. They become converted. They receive the Spirit of God at the moment of conversion because we know that's when believers receive the Spirit. And what do they want to do? Be baptized. Right. Yes. They want to be baptized and proclaim to the world that they are servants. They're slaves of Christ. And again, I would like to take the time now to encourage you. Again, we live in a pseudo-weird, semi-Christian pagan nation where, you know, everyone in Tennessee is baptized and everyone's a believer. And it's just something we do, but guys, if you haven't been baptized, if you've accepted Christ, if you honor him as Lord, if you seek to to glorify him in all things, all things that you do, be baptized. And I'm not saying pull over on the side of the road over here and jump in the pond right now like the Ethiopian, but go to your parents. Ask those difficult questions. Do you see fruit in my life that would indicate that I love Jesus? Do you think it would be wise for me to be baptized? Go to your small group leaders. Go to your youth group leaders. Guys, this is important. Again, it is a sacred act in one sense, and we need to honor that in obedience to Christ. And again, I'm not saying you need to be a super mega mature Christian (laughs) to be baptized. If you believe in Christ, if you have simple faith in Christ, that's all you need. And again, you need to trust the Holy Spirit to bring about the work of sanctification in your life, the work of maturity. So guys, be baptized if you have not. We would love, us as leaders would love nothing more than to hear you come up and share your testimony. And don't be, don't be scared about giving your testimony either, because that is the sweetest thing. I mean, just, I'm always just constantly weeping. You know, when, I, when I, I see someone come up and share their testimony, I'm so glad we do that. And I get their stage fright and things like that. But 
It's not a testimony about how cool my testimony is. It's a testimony of the work of Christ in your life. And that's why we all come together. And we want to rejoice in that. We want to come around that. It's helpful for Christian fellowship. So guys, don't be afraid. Uh, sign up. Talk to your parents. Become baptized if you are in Christ, if you are a believer. So nextly, we'll see Paul's apostolic blessing. So we have two minutes to cover uh, spiritual gifts and uh, the, you know, uh, speaking in tongues. I might have Tony come up and uh, cover that. Um, I'm just kidding. So we see Paul's apostolic blessing. And again, we, we recognize, we have a basic understanding. I don't have a lot of time to dig into it, like I just said. But in the early church, we recognize the Lord ordained and commissioned select men to establish the early church. Apostolic gifts were given. These are gifts, again, speaking in tongues, prophesying, healings. That, that, again, these are gifts that we cannot exhibit today. We cannot use these gifts. These are not uh, available to us in the Spirit. The view that we hold is called cessationism, which means that these gifts were used for a, a time in the foundation of the church, and now they have ceased or they have been completed, that the Lord had used them for the establishment for, for the really confirmation of his church, for the spreading by visual signs and wonders, and now they have ceased. And again, I would just say, without really doing a deep scriptural dive into it, we are a legitimate church. We are following the word of God. We are seeking to honor Christ in all things. We are following diligently the scriptures. And if it is a spiritual gift to speak in tongues today, if it's a spiritual gift to heal but, I mean, miraculously healing through a person. Me laying my hand on Will and healing his, you know, bad hearing. Or, yeah, that was a funny example. But healing, speaking in tongues, prophesying. If these were spiritual gifts available to us today, they would be evident within this church. They would be. Guys, if you learn nothing, if we learn nothing about, sorry, about, I'm trying to blast you, but I'm not really trying to blast you. If we learn nothing about the working of God, the sovereignty, the power, the authority of God. Do you think you can thwart the Spirit of God? You can't. The, the gifts will be evident within you, in all people. It's not that, well, I have this gift and you have this gift. We're all called, to some extent, to express those gifts, those spiritual gifts, which, again, we don't have a lot of time to dig into what those are to us today. But again, this is, this is very clear that these gifts were used for the establishment of the church. They are not in use today. That is very clear. But, we, but I say that because we're going to read on in the text. It says, When Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. So, conclusion, application. What do we take from this passage? How do we work through this? Very specific thing being taught here. How does it apply to us today? These are your three, three, food, three food for thought questions. Firstly, we must have the heart of evangelism. We must have a heart for evangelism. Paul sees 12 seemingly random guys probably on the road, and his message is unwavering. Have you received the Spirit? Are you in Christ? Do you know my Lord? Paul loved people. He loved them well. He loved them biblically. We need to exhibit the same attitude, not only to strangers, but to your friends, to your family, especially friends and family, those that are close to you. It would be like 
living with someone, living with a, a family member who has a critical disease, having the cure and withholding it from them. Guys, we have to get over our fear of speaking openly about the gospel. We have to get over our fear of speaking about things of the Lord. You will be laughed at. You'll be looked down on. You might even be persecuted, bullied, ridiculed, mocked. But guys, these people are dying. They are dying. Some of you are dying. Some of you have not accepted Christ. And God, is our, guys, it is our heart's desire that you would bend the knee and come to accept Christ and live for him. And that should be our, our desire for every man, that we would love our enemies well, that we would seek, their spirit, they would seek spiritual life because they are spiritually dead. Secondly, second takeaway here, we must worship the Holy Spirit. We must worship the Holy Spirit. Really, the overarching message and theme of this text is the worship, the greatness, and the glory of the Holy Spirit. He is worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship. There's a song that we sing on Wednesday nights, which I love, uh, called God the Spirit. And here's a, here's a line that I just love from it. It says, when we wander, Lord, direct us. Keep us in the Master's way. Let thy strong, swift sword protect us, warring in the evil day. Shall the church now faint or fear when the Comforter is near? God the Spirit, we adore thee. In the triune Godhead, one, one in love and power and glory with the Father and the Son. We can understand that the, the age in which we live is a theological term to describe it. Called, we're, we are the church militant. We are at war with the spiritual forces of darkness. We are at war with the devil. And what a picture that the Holy Spirit is our comforter, along with the Word of God, is our protector, is our offense against the evil one. Might we not neglect the Spirit? The Spirit enlivens our hearts and reminds us of reminds us of the work of Christ on our behalf and the truth of God's word. God the Spirit, we adore thee. Thirdly, and finally, we talked about it last week, we're going to talk about it again because this is where our passage comes to, but we must be gracious and humble in giving and receiving correction. We need to learn to give gracious correction and we need to learn to receive humble correction. Or correction humbly. In doing this, we need to lean on the Holy Spirit for help and guidance, guidance, asking, Lord, please give me the grace to confront this person. Lord, keep away my selfishness and my self-righteousness that I might seek this person's good and their edification. And then on the flip side, when someone confronts you and maybe they didn't do it in the most gracious way, saying, Lord, please help me lay aside my pride and reveal to me my sin and my error that I might not sin against you, seeking to please you, revealing any way that I'm not acting wisely. Guys, the Christian life is marked by repentance. It is. If you're a believer, that is the sweetest thing you can do, is recognize your sin, come in repentance, and lean on a gracious God. Might we be, not be proud people? We need to constantly be examining our life, constantly seeking to conform our lives to the image of Christ. And newsflash, you'll never be perfect. There's lots of work to be done. You're never going to achieve sinless perfection. So there's always repenting to be doing. There's always conforming to be doing. We need to learn from this passage. We need to examine our own lives that we might worship the Spirit. We might receive 
and give correction graciously and humbly, we might have a heart of evangelism for the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come as a, a needy people. Lord, recognizing our great need where we realize we have a great Savior for our great need who supplies all things. Lord, we come today and we worship your Spirit. Lord, we worship the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, for the working in the life of the believer. Lord, we know that you are faithful to complete the good work you have begun in your children. Lord, we know that you bring that about by the sanctification of the Spirit or by the, the comforter, the helper. Lord, might we lean on the Holy Spirit. Why, might we not neglect or ignore the spurrings, the pointings of the, of the Holy Spirit? Might we conform our lives, that that would be our heartbeat, that would be our prayer, that we would look like Christ and we would not neglect the Spirit as it prompts us to do that. We would not neglect our Bible reading. We would not neglect prayer with you, that we would lean into that. We'd lean into one another, Lord, that we'd seek to be a people with a sole purpose to honor Christ and to be ready for his appearing. Lord, I pray that for these young people. I pray that they would see with a dire need for holiness and holy living, Lord. I pray that they would not have the attitude that they, could, they can do it later or they'll, they'll grow up later or that they would grow up now. They would grow into Christ. I ask these things in your name.